please open your Bibles again to First, uh, to first Peter, not yet, to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, and I trust you were able to get a copy of the brochure, or the notes uh, for this message as you came in, help you track along with this series that we're doing on the life and the pen of Peter. One of my favorite pastoral conferences to attend is one I've been to probably 10 or 11 times over the years that I've been in in pastoral ministry, and it's the Shepherds Conference in just outside of Los Angeles, California. Actually, technically, it's still in Los Angeles. The first one I went to was in 1995, and I've gone on and off every two or three years since then. And uh, I just love the fellowship of the church. I love the fellowship of the types of pastors that that conference draws in. I love their convictions, their doctrine, and uh, just appreciate it. And I've been sharpened by it for, for decades now. But there's one thing I never look forward to on that trip. I'm not a fan of being in L.A. I don't mind seeing L.A. on TV or, or hearing a song about but being there is intense. How many of you have been to Los Angeles? Raise your hand. Right? I mean, it depends. First of all, any, any city that has five airports, you should be concerned about. And uh, the main one is LAX. And the same thing happens every time I go, I, I go uh, the last couple of years, maybe the last dozen years or so. And, and, and it's this. I, land, I watch us fly into L.A. I'm like, oh, the mountains have stopped. The deserts have stopped. It's just city. It's just concrete. And and so you, 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 and mountains sticking out of it, and, and some valleys, and you fly into this amazingly intense population. And you get a little overwhelmed. I'm, I'm, I'm from Ypsilanti, or it used to be Winston-Salem, or, I mean, the, the, the further back I go, the smaller the cities might get sometimes. And, 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 and to see Los Angeles is just overwhelming. But I, I loved it when smartphones were invented. Because what happened when smartphones came along is this. When you see that your plane has landed in Los Angeles, as overwhelmed as you may be, all you need to do is put the address of Grace Community Church, where the conference is going to be, put that in your phone, and you'll get there. Yes, you're going to drive on, on highways that at sometimes are 12 lanes across, five and six lanes one direction, and you're going to do it during rush hour, and you're going to have motorcycles riding between the cars there, because, well, they can. And as, as daunting, as intimidating as it can be, if you just focus on your smartphone, Los Angeles makes sense. You'll get there. You know, in a similar way, I have found spiritually that if you focus on Christ, in other words, he's the north on your compass. If you focus on Christ, life will make sense. It really will. There will be no loose ends unaddressed. If you focus on Christ, life makes sense. And I'll I'll even push that a little farther. If you focus on Christ, the church makes sense. The church. And it's here I just, have, I just have a principle. I have this in your notes if you're taking notes. And here's a principle that's important and it will launch us this morning. The principle is this. If you get Christ right, you'll get the church right. I promise you. You get Christ right, you will get church right. It's a different type of sermon this morning as we come to this series on Peter. My goal this morning is simply this. I want to explain to you why I am so thankful for the church. I am so thankful for the church. I'm not just talking about the little C church. We would call that Calvary Baptist Church. This is our local assembly Yes, I'm thankful for our local assembly. I'm thankful for the people that gather here on a regular basis. I'm thankful for an amazing stream of visitors constantly. 
I'm thankful for the growth that the Spirit is doing in this church. I'm thankful for the blessings. I'm thankful for the overwhelming blessings of our people's giving to invest in the work of the kingdom through this church. I'm very thankful with the property and the buildings our Lord has given this church over eight decades. Very thankful. I'm very thankful for the opportunities and the efforts every single week, some in this building, some out of this building, at coffee shops and living rooms. There's just a constant activity of discipleship here. Life on life. I'm so thankful for that. So when I say that I'm thankful for the church, yes, I'm talking about Calvary Baptist Church, Little C. But I'm even looking past Calvary to something that Calvary is part of. And it's the church, capital C, the universal body of Christ. You say, wow, you're a little exercised about this this morning. You doing all right? A little too much coffee this morning? I mean, why would someone stand up there and say that they're so thankful for the church? Are they, is it just a personal preference with you? Is it a hobby because you're a pastor? Oh, it's because it's your job, right? Maybe it's just because you like pain and difficult people. Is that why? Maybe you don't need sleep, is that it? No. I am truly thankful for the church. You say, why? I love the church because of what, of all people, Peter captures and communicates in our text here in Matthew chapter 16. Now, often when we come to Matthew chapter 16, we, we want to, if, if we're thinking we're studying Peter, we want to hurry up to verses 21 to 23 where Jesus will say to him, um, Peter, you're in trouble again. You're in trouble again. Jesus tells about his death, and Peter takes him aside, verse 22, and says, no, not on my watch. And, and Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Remember that text? We usually go to that text so we can hit Peter again, beat up on the guy. But I'm not going to those verses this morning. I'm going to the verses that precede them, because sometimes... Peter's failure in the next few verses overshadows what just happened in Peter's life. What we're going to see in verses 13 through 20 actually happened, actually involved Peter. And by God's grace, he actually got it right. And everything we're going to see unfold between this conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples in general, and Peter eventually in particular, gives all the reasons, listen, why I am so thankful for the church. And there's three reasons. Number one, see, why are you so thankful for the church? Number one, because its foundation is unshakable. Its foundation is absolutely unshakable. When, when I use that word unshakable, what comes to your mind? I mean, what, what names or places or things come to your mind as being unshakable? I think of, and you might fill this in with a different president of your preference, but in my life, I think of President Reagan. He was unflinching and unshakable. It wasn't perfect. And you might have a different president. Okay. But in my mind, when I was a kid... I looked at that grown-up president and said, he's, he's a tough dude. He's unshakable. I think of our military, our military might of our, of our country. Again, not perfect, but I would say it's unshakable. I look at those who commit them lo- their lives to cancer research and finding a solution and a cure. Those people, they're unshakable. You can't stop them. I think of my pastor in Virginia Beach who texted me that he's praying for us again this morning as he does every morning, Sunday at 6 in the morning. Pastor Daniel Davey. There's a guy, in my mind, who's unshakable. I think of Mount Everest. Unshakable. And then I hurry back here to Michigan and I look at the mighty Great Lakes. Yeah, that's unshakable. See, why do you love the church? Because its foundation is unshakable. Okay, then what is the foundation of the church? I mean, we want to know what's unshakable. 
What is this foundation? And you're going to have to do a little work with me this morning. If you want to find out what the foundation of the church is, you can find out from this passage by asking four questions. Just four simple questions will give you the answer. The first question, what is the topic of discussion in this text? What is the topic of discussion? Now, it's not hard to figure this out. Go to the first word. Uh, or the first verse of this paragraph, verse 13, Matthew chapter 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now skip down to verse 15 again. He said to them, but who do you say I am? So this first question is pretty easy. This first question is, who Jesus is? The topic of discussion. What is the topic of discussion? The answer is simply, who I am. Who Jesus is. You say, what in the world is Caesarea Philippi? Is that a, is that a pizza combo you can get from Jet's Pizza? What's that? It's actually an interesting area. Those of you who have been to Israel, as I have, have actually been to the spot where this is unfolding. Caesarea Philippi was not the same as Caesarea on the Mediterranean Sea, built by Herod. No, this one was built by Herod Philip. It was under his leadership that he rebuilt this city, and he named this city after Tiberius Caesar, just to get brownie points, and himself, so that he didn't lose some of the glory. So hence you have the name of the city, Caesarea, Caesar, Philippi, Philip. You say, where is Caesarea Philippi? Well, if you went to the, the Sea of Galilee and traveled north from there, following the Jordan River, you just would follow the Jordan River north of Galilee, after about 20 to th- 25 to 30 miles, you would come to what is known as Caesarea Philippi. It's at the base of Mount Hermon, a ginormous mountain range. And as a matter of fact, you can see it from 200 miles away. It's such a mountain. All the snow on that mountain year-round is what creates most of the water that will flow down eventually to the tributaries and into the Jordan River. So that's where you are. You're, you're north of the Sea of Galilee. Tell us about this here. This is a primarily Gentile area. It's, it goes by the name back in the day of uh, Peneus. Today, it's Banias, and it's, a name, it's named after this area, after the Greek god Pan, and you hear it in all these different names, P-A-N in English. As a matter of fact, if you go there even today, there's a shrine still in the face of the rock for this false worship of Pan. This, before it was a site of worship for Pan, in Old Testament times, was a site of worship for Baal. And it, at this time, was worship of not only the false god Pan, but also a place of worship of Caesar himself. And as a matter of fact, within sight of this position that we're talking about is an actual temple to Caesar. So, I mean, we're in the thick of it. We're in the thick of idolatry here, worshiping living emperors and worshiping images and things formed by hand which the new te- or the old testament will remind us when you worship idols you're involved in demonic worship it's amazing and, and and it's right here that jesus gives us the topic of discussion he asks twice who am i that's an important question if we're going to figure out what the foundation is but we have to go to the second question. Not only what is the topic of discussion, we know that now, it's, it's who Jesus is. The second question is, what are the bookends of this context? What are the bookends? And again, you say, what's a bookend? Well, a bookend is, is an idea, it's, it's where someone comes in to a conversation, they state their topic, they discuss it, and then they state their topic in conclusion again. Those are, those are the bookends. 
And we have bookends here. Matthew, in his gospel, often uses this literary device. And you see the bookends here in verse 13. Again, look at it. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? When we come to the end of this paragraph, verse 20, then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Different words, but same bookends. Who he is starts the discussion. Who he is ends this particular discussion. Those are the bookends. So in a sense, the answer to the first two questions we're working with here are the same. It's who Jesus is. There's a third question as we do our homework, and it's this. What is the only right answer? What is the only right answer to the question, who is Jesus? Now once again, look at verse 13. And we'll press past it. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist. He had been killed, as you know. So this would mean him come back to life. Others, Elijah, who was a bold preacher of repentance. But still others, Jeremiah, who was a prophet, who was wrapped up and would lament the unbelief of his people, and was persecuted, and continued to announce the coming judgment. And that reminded, Jesus reminded people of Jeremiah. And for others, they think you are one of the prophets, it says at the end of verse 14. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or Simon the son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The question's out there. He's asking his disciples, who do people back in Galilee, back in Judea, or in the Gentile regions where we've worked miracles, who do they say that I am? And they gave him lofty options. Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Those are words of flattery almost. But I agree with the commentator McDonald, William McDonald, who wrote, Jesus, according to the general population, was one among many. He was good, but not the best. He was great, but not the greatest. He was a prophet, but not the prophet. And MacDonald says this, This view will never do. Because this view condemned Jesus with faint praise. End quote. He's right. What's the only right answer? There's only one answer. And it comes here by revelation. It comes, as Jesus says to Peter, it comes from the Father through Peter about Jesus. This is revelation. And it's giving us the answer to who Jesus is. There's only one answer. Verse 16, Peter's right. You are the Christ. You say, he's using Jesus' last name. We always say Jesus Christ. Hold on. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is Jesus' title. He's saying, you are the Messiah. The Old Old Testament anointed one. The promised one. The perfect one. You are the Messiah, the sent one, listen, of the living God, Peter says. The living God. I love that. Those words would reverberate across that plain and, 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 and near that, that, that shrine they were by, which was idolatrous. Those words could reverberate at some point to where the ears of, of, of the emperor would eventually hear. 
Peter's saying, you're not just a sent one by a God because these false gods all around us right here in Caesarea Philippi, those are dead. And the emperor who is worshipped here as well, he will die. But you are the Messiah sent by the living God. Peter, you got it right. Unto us a son, a child, a child is born. Unto us a son is given. You're him. That's the right answer. Who's Jesus? He's the Messiah. But there's one more question, because we want to know what's the foundation. The fourth question is this. Who is this giving the right answer? Who is giving the right answer here? Did you catch it? Before we run down to verse 16, you've got to see who the question's directed to. And that's in verse 13. Verse 13 says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking who? His disciples. All 12 of them. This question is directed to the disciples, and guess who answers it? In verse 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We have Peter here again, the first one to say something. And this is a good one. Peter, in answering, is not giving his own personal opinion. He is once again, as he will in the Gospels as well as in the, early in the book of Acts, he will speak as the spokesman, the representative of the group that's talking or being spoken to. Peter says, here's our conclusion. He says, I'm stating it. This is my conviction, but this is what we conclude. You are the Christ. Amazing. Peter's giving the right answer. But we need to, do, we need to look at something here. In verse 17, Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, the son of John. Simon Bar-Jonah, the son of John. It's interesting, Jesus is almost talking to him in a parallel fashion. Peter just said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says back, okay, Peter, the son of John. Because you are blessed, because flesh and blood did not reveal my identity to you. But the Father who is in heaven. And he says, I say to you that you are Peter, verse 18, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. This is an interesting verse, one of the most debated in the New Testament, to be honest with you. What's going on with the wordplay? Why go from a, a Peter's name as a rock, which, by the way, Jesus, back, we, we learned back in John chapter 1, verse 42, changed Peter's name to rock, indicating the transforming work that Jesus will do in the life of Peter over the course of his life and ministry. It can be a larger rock, but more often a small rock. It's a masculine Greek noun. Petros. He says, you are Petros. I told you at the beginning when Andrew brought you to me that I'm going to call you, start calling you rock. And you are, and you will be. But there's one bigger than you. And then he goes, when he says, upon this rock, he changes to a feminine Greek word for rock, Petra, meaning a ginormous cliff. Or a base of rock. Much bigger than just a smaller rock. Or a small boulder. The structure here is adversative. Meaning, you're Peter, this rock. But I want to tell you that what you just said is, listen, bigger than you are. What you just said is bigger than you are. That's who answered this question. Peter gave the right answer because the Father opened his mind and opened his mouth to give it. 
So now we're ready to answer this question. What is the foundation of the church? Or maybe we should say, who is the foundation of the church? Look at verse 18 again. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. If we're still asking what or who is the foundation of the church, we're right there now. We have our answer. Even look at that phrase we just read. I will build. That's a future verb. Who's the I? Jesus. I will build what? My church. What's going to be built belongs to me. Because I created it, I'm building it. It's mine. That's why Paul will say in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, to the elders from Ephesus, he'll say, be careful that you, you, you faithfully shepherd the flock that God's put you over, which he purchased with, literally it says, the blood of his own. The redeemed of the ages are his. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul writes to the believers there, he says, don't you know that you've been bought with a price, you're not your own? Jesus says, I will build my church. This is an interesting word. Ecclesia is the word. You've heard of it before. It's used 114 times in the New Testament. Of those 114 times, 90 times it refers to the gathered New Testament local church, the various local churches. Gathered, not on, not on live stream. They're together. They're life on life, not just for the 90 minutes together of praising, but between those 90 minutes, between Lord's days, with each other as a body. Who's the foundation of the church? There's no mystery about it, my friend. It's Jesus Christ. What Peter, it's not Peter. Peter's not the foundation of the church. He's the one that answered for the group. He is the one who gave the right answer in that moment. And our Lord is directing these comments in these few verses that we're looking at in these few moments directly to Peter because of what Peter said, not because, listen, of who Peter was. Peter has confessed the truth that Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. I agree with the pastor from Britain in another, a previous generation, G. Campbell Morgan, put it this way, about this text. Remember, Jesus was talking to Jews. If we trace the figurative use of the word rock through the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, we find that it is never used symbolically of man, but always of God. So here at Caesarea Philippi, it's not upon Peter that the church is built. Jesus did not trifle with figures of speech. He took up their old Hebrew illustration, rock, always a symbol of deity, and he said, upon God himself, Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church. So the right answer as to what the foundation is, is Jesus Christ. And we're not surprised with that answer. We saw that coming, right? We saw that coming, but understand, though Matthew in his gospel has used the language as the narrator of Messiah for Jesus, this is the first time the disciples voice it in the gospel. And they still won't have the ultimate right perspective on it. Look at Peter in the next few verses. Jesus says he's going to die, and Peter's like, yeah, Messiah's not supposed to die. But the Father's working in their hearts. The foundation of the church is unshakable. Absolutely. That's why we read verses like this in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is what? Jesus Christ. Acts 4, verses 11 and 12. He, Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, by which became the chief cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. 
For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Or it can't be any clearer than Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. He's going to use foundation language for the apostles, but he's even going to show how there's a foundation to the foundation. Listen to this, Ephesians 2, 19 and following. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built, listen, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and here's the foundation of the foundation, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Oh, Peter never forgot this. He had it straight. He knew that the Lord wasn't telling him, you're the foundation, everything's on you, Peter. He would see himself as just one stone of many stones that are being used to build the church in every generation. Peter will write these words a few decades decades later in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 5, and coming to him, to Jesus, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but it's choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, believers, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You say, what's the foundation of a church? Why do you love the church? Why are you so thankful for the church? Because its foundation, Jesus Christ, is unshakable. Many of you have read this quote by Napoleon Bonaparte as he was discussing the matter of Christ with Henry Bertrand, an officer who was accompanying him into exile. But this officer did not believe in the deity of Jesus. And so Napoleon launched into him with these words. Listen to this. I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ was not a mere man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between him and the founders of empires and the gods of their religions. But that resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and the forms of pagan worship the distance of infinity. Everything in Christ astonishes me, Napoleon continues. His spirit overawes me. His will confounds me. He commands us to believe, and he gives no reason besides his own inspiring claim that he's God. Between him and others in this world, there is no possible comparison. He is truly a being by himself. His sentiments, the truths which he announced, and his manner of life are unexplainable. Philosophers who try to solve the mysteries of the universe by their empty dissertations are fools. Christ speaks with authority. And then he says this, The closer I come, the more carefully I examine him. Everything is above me. And it has a grandeur which which overpowers. I search in vain in history to find one similar to Jesus or anything which can approach the gospel he preached, everything about him is extraordinary. End quote. Yeah. That's why I love the church. Because its foundation is unshakable. And I don't know about you, but I'm okay with Jesus being the foundation of the church. I'd rather it be Jesus than a popular radio preacher, right? I'd rather it be Jesus than the CEO of some ministry or, or, or corporation. I'd rather it be Jesus than a marketing expert. I'd rather the foundation of the church be Jesus than the president of any institution, secular or Christian. I'm so okay with Jesus being the head of the church instead of a pastor or a deacon. I'm okay with him being the head of the church and not a blogger and not a Christian 
star singer. My wife and I had the joy of building a house in Winston-Salem when we were pastoring down there, when I was pastor at Twin City Baptist Church. And never thought we'd build a house. And the Lord just opened a door to do it, and we could afford it. And then there's no basements there in Winston-Salem. You just lay a slab, and then you build, on, build up from the slab. It's a foundation. And it was just about four miles from our house we were living in, which we couldn't wait to move out of. And we found every excuse to drive by our new house while it was going up, while they were clearing it out, while they were digging where they needed to dig as they laid the foundation, uh, that, that, the concrete slab. If we had to go out for toothpaste, we'd drive to that side of town so we could stop and see the progress on the way back. And I'll never forget when the foundation is finally laid. It was like, well, everything else that happens is going to be a result of that foundation. It's the same with Christ. Isaiah 28, verse 16, looking forward to Christ. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. And he who believes in it will not be disturbed. I'm thankful for the church because it's not budging, ever, in any generation. You say, well, for how long? Well, that, I'm glad you asked. That, gives you, that leads me to the second reason I love the church, and it's this. I am thankful for the church because its duration is undying. Its duration is undying. Again, look at verse 18. I will... Upon this rock I will build my church. And look at this phrase. Grab this one right now. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The gates of Hades. What is this? This is an Old Testament way of saying death. It's an Old Testament way, a Jewish way of saying this is the abode of the death. This is where the, death, the dead people go when they stop living. When you cross that line from living to dead... You go here. It's the greatest fear that anyone ever has in any generation since our fall into sin. It's death. But the language here, though it could be seen as being defensive, in other words, it's coming for us. We're on two teams. We got the church and we got Satan and his kingdom, and there's going to be a clash, and all that's true. And they're they're constantly facing off against each other. That's true. But the language here has the the, the, the enemy of death advancing on the church. Attacking the church. He says they won't prevail. Death is going to die. As a matter of fact, the very next verse after, chapter, after verse 20, Jesus says, I got to die. And my death's going to have everything to do, we'll later find out, with the death of death. This is amazing. Death itself is on the offensive against the church to destroy us, to swallow us up in every generation. And it fails, it fails, it fails. Why? Because our foundation is Christ. He will triumph. Yes, Christ is pointing to his own death and to his own resurrection. Don't leave off the last line of verse 21. The advance of death will mean death's death. I mean, you have to agree. The greatest assault by the greatest enemy against anything living is what? It's death. And what's behind that? Hebrews 2.14. The devil has the power of death. But he's got a problem. And the devil's problem, death's problem, is you, the church. Say, what do you mean? Well, first of all, when someone is in Christ, they're in the church, there's no fear of death. None. No fear of death. The missionary Adoniram Judson, who went to Burma, endured untold hardships as he was trying to reach the lost for Christ. You might have read some of his stories. 
For seven heartbreaking years, he suffered hunger and privation. And during this time, he was thrown into uh, the Ava, if I'm saying that correctly, prison. And he was in that prison, listen, for 17 months. And he was submitted to, in that prison, unmentionable mistreatment and abuse. And as a result of his 17 months in that prison, for the rest of his life, he carried the ugly marks made by the chains and the iron shackles which had cruelly bound him during his torture. But then he was released. And he was undaunted. Upon his release, he asked for permission to enter another province where he might resume preaching the gospel. Don't you love that? The godless ruler indignantly denied his request with these words. My people are not fools enough to listen to anything a missionary might say, but I fear they might be impressed by your scars and turn to your Jesus. I love that. Judson and others, there's no fear of death. It's coming, but it's going to die. Death will die. In Hebrews 11 verses 32 and following will say there's a whole string of believers that came before you. The people of whom the world is not even worthy. They didn't fear death. They could see something that no one else could see around them. They saw him who was invisible. There's no fear of death and there's no defeat by death. No fear of death and no defeat by death. Now, someone might be saying, wait, wait, hold on. If death ends up losing, then what do we do with the martyrs? What do we do with people who are persecuted for their faith in Christ and and ultimately die? Is Is that negating what he's saying to Peter and the disciples here? Absolutely not. Because it's not a loss, see. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 53 to 58. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality, but when this perishable will put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. No wonder Paul could say in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is its gain. Death is defeated. A church historian, Tertullian, is well known for saying, you want to make martyrs bleed? Go ahead. Because the blood of the martyrs is the what? The seed of the church. I, I wonder, before we finish this up, are you in the church? Not are you in the building in a seat right now in a local church with an address on e-course. Has there been a time in your life when you've realized, I'm a sinner. Scripture is right. And I stand condemned before a holy God, but he became me. He became man in the person of Jesus and lived the perfect life and died the ultimate death and rose again. And if I place my faith in him and turn from my sin, there will be sufficient covering and forgiveness for all that separated me from God. Have you done that? Has he worked into your, in your heart and mind to see that truth? Have you come to him? Because when you do, suddenly, watch this, you got nothing to lose in this life. Living for Christ. Death doesn't even scare you. There's no fear of death. And there's no defeat by death. Oh, I'm thankful for the church because it keeps going and going and going. Not just ahead into the future. It's not just moving forward in time for eternity. But the church is moving in every direction now here on earth. There's a third reason and we close with it. Why am I so thankful for the church? Because its expansion is unstoppable. Its expansion is unstoppable. 
He says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Interesting. I mean, there's two facts that just say you can't, you can't stop the church. You can't stop the advance of the kingdom. You're going to see it in the horn of, of, of Africa this evening at five, as an example. You can set up kingdoms and, and governments and, and laws against it, and the church will advance. What do you mean? Well, I'll just put it to you this way. Opened doors cannot be shut. He says, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom, Peter, and does that mean just to Peter? No, it's to, I really believe it extends down to all of us. It's the, it's the wonderful calling to take the gospel of Christ and share it with people so that the church expands. You say, well, what about Peter? Well, Peter's going to be the first one, if you will, to unlock the door to the Jews in Acts chapter 2 and to the Gentiles with Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10. But in a sense, we have these keys as well to preach the gospel, and watch it advance. He's still opening doors. Revelation 5.9 will happen. They sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book, Lord, and to break its seals, for you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So there's, gonna, there's open doors that can't be shut. But secondly... From this phrase, I get this. God's word cannot be changed. Open doors can't be shut, and God's words can't be changed. What do you mean by that? Well, that's that confusing language in the end of verse 19. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. That is a good translation of something that you don't ever want to hear again in this life. And it's the, it's the perfect passive paraphrastic construction in the Greek. Wasn't that a, a, a blessing? But your ESV footnote has it. Your NASB has it. New King James footnote has it. The Net Bible has it. The Christian Standard Bible has it. The Legacy Standard Bible has it. It captures what is actually there. It doesn't mean that, hey, whatever you guys say down there, heaven will agree with. No. It's what is true in heaven you're going to say. If you say that someone's forgiven, it's not because you forgave them, Peter, or apostles, or Christian at Calvary. It's because they came to faith in Christ. And heaven's already said when that happens, you'll be forgiven. God's word is forever settled in heaven. Cleon Rogers, in his commentary, says... This is the church on earth carrying out heaven's decisions, not heaven ratifying the church's decisions. He's right. Hmm. I'm throwing out material left and right right now. You know that. Let me just ask you this. Why am I thankful for the church? Big C. I'm thankful because its foundation is unshakable. I'm thankful because its duration is it's unending. And I'm thankful because its expansion is unstoppable. Absolutely. This is the universal church, the body of Christ, in our generation right now, and it's just flat exciting. But let's bring it back to the little C church, the one we call Calvary. It's made up of people, not bricks. We're not a perfect church. We have our imperfections, starting with your pastor. There's imperfections with programs, with people. We have problems. But make no mistake about it, we're something, we're part of something much bigger than us. I mean, do you agree? Then I have three questions. Number one. It's a question of your attendance. A question of your attendance. It's, it's an issue of frequency of being here in your focus while you're here. If all this is true, it seems like I would want to gather physically as often as I can to worship and between worship services to fellowship 
and disciple each other. It's a question of attendance. There's a question of your attitude. Say, what do you mean? I mean, do you have to be dragged into church? Or do you have to be pulled away from church? Are you sitting back and slouching, or are you on the edge of your seat? Are you a spectator or a player? Are you a critic or a pillar? According to Matthew 16, 18, the greatest thing is happening in your lifetime, and it's the church. And then a third question, a question of your attachment. Have you joined? Have you become a a member in order to be fully accountable and be in covenant with a group of people? That's a touchdown. That's a touchdown. Or would you rather just stay in orbit without accountability? Those are the questions I have to ask. But I'll tell you one thing. When you look at the church, it's unshakable, it's unending, and it's unstoppable. So why is that? Because what Paul said in Colossians 1.18 in closing, listen to this. He is the head of the body of the church. <laughs> He's the beginning. The firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. It's all about Christ. Lord Jesus, it's all about you. It's all about your glory. It's all about the church being a love gift given to you by the Father, and one that you will cleanse and conform to your image through time, And present back to your Father. It's all about His kingdom. And His name. And His will. Work in our hearts, Lord. An anchor's been dropped this morning. It's your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.